As we stagger and stumble to walk where you lead, give us faith to be strong. Give us faith to be strong, give us strength to be faithful. This life is not long, but it's Give us grace to go on, make us willing and able, Lord, give us faith to be strong. Give us peace when we're torn, mend us up when we break, this flesh can be wounded and shaky. When there's much too much trouble for one heart to take Give us peace when we're torn Give us faith to be strong Give us strength to be faithful This life is not long but it's hard Give us grace to go Father, we cannot see how the sorrow we feel can bring freedom. And as hard as we try, Lord, it's hard to believe. So give us hearts to find hope. Give us faith to be strong. Give us strength to be faithful. This life is not long.
welcome to all of you. Just a reminder that at the end of our service this morning, we will be uh, doing what we've done over the last few weeks. We'll be leaving through these doors to close by singing a couple of songs together. And there are song sheets um, on the chair by the door. If you pick one of those up on your way out, there should be enough, but you might want to share between couples. And then we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m. to continue looking at Matthew's Gospel. I hope that you can join us for that. And then in the week also, we have a, a prayer time that's online Thursday at 7.45 p.m. And again, I hope that you can plan to uh, join us for that. If you haven't had an email uh, or if you haven't uh, been getting emails and you would like to have a link to join that, you could uh, ask myself or Steve at the end. We can get you one of those. We begin with some words from 1 Samuel describing the God we are here to worship. 1 Samuel says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. Our first song is a song of praise to the Lord who is king forevermore.
lifted high the sinless man, they crucified the spotless lamb, buried by the sons of man, but he was rescued by the Father's hands to reign as king forever, reign as king forever, reign as king forevermore. King eternal God of praise, we crown you with the highest praise. Heaven shouts and saints just been singing that our God is King of Kings. Now, the Christian Institute have designated this week as a week of prayer, and today they're asking us to pray for those in authority over us. So it's appropriate, having sung what we just did, that we uh, pray for those in lesser positions of authority, and we're going to do that as we pray together now. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, you are faithful through it all. Lord God, we worship you as the Almighty, the God who humbles and exalts. Your word tells us you both establish and you replace those in human authority over us. And today we pray for those men and women. We pray for our royal family as they continue to mourn the death of Prince Philip. We pray that they will take hold of the truths that were read and sung at his funeral service. We pray that they will trust in you as their king. They will worship you as the one who sits on the highest throne. And we pray for our government as they respond to so many challenges, both at home and abroad. Will you give them insight as they work to balance short-term demands and long-term planning? Will you lead them in all those things to promote what is good and to restrain what is evil? We remember that last week we looked at the Ten Commandments, that 
wisdom from you, the all-wise God. We pray that our Prime Minister and his government would be led to acknowledge your wisdom, that they would seek your wisdom in all that they do. And we pray for ourselves as we seek to live by your wisdom. We know that won't always make us popular. We know it will often cause us to be ridiculed or worse. But we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that we, your people, would be like a city on a hill. Help us live in obedience to you so that we will be like a light on a stand that points others to your wisdom and your worthiness. Amen. Later, we'll be hearing from the book of Deuteronomy about Israel's experience at Mount Sinai. And now we're going to hear a Bible reading from the New Testament that speaks about that same event. And it shows how our experience is different and how it's the same as Israel's. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. The passage is headed, The Mountain of Fear and the Mountain of Joy. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God's word.
The writer of Hebrews says we can approach God because of Jesus. His blood made relationship with God possible for us. And our next song reminds us that we come by the blood. Our Sunday school are going to be uh, moving next door. They can scream and shout all you want. <laughs> not really, yes, not really. Sorry. Afterwards, you can do that. What is God like? Surely that's one of the most important questions there is. 
Of course, some people don't believe in God, but those people are actually a small minority. Only 7% of the world's population identify themselves as atheists. So for the 93% who believe in something greater than us, the question, what is God like, is an extremely important question. And many people answer the question without really thinking about it. They believe we can't really know what God is like. We're just left to imagine for ourselves what he might be like. And when we're left to our own imagination, we can come up with all sorts of pictures of God. There's the weak and woolly old granddad in the sky who thinks everything we do is just lovely. There's the angry dictator in the sky who delights in crushing us. Or there's the trendy guy in the sky who sees everything just the way we do and is passionate about exactly the same things we are. Of course, the trouble with the God of our imagination is our lives become a great big gamble because we can never truly be sure if God is the way we imagine him to be. But the Bible comes into that situation like a breath of fresh air. It insists we can know what God is truly like because he has revealed himself. Now, the Bible doesn't claim we can, that it's telling us absolutely everything there is to know about God, but it insists we can know him truly. So paying attention to what the Bible tells us is incredibly important. It saves us from making mistakes about God, from imagining him to be what he's not. We've seen that the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons preached by Moses to the Israelites as they prepare to cross the Jordan River and enter the promised land. The aim of this book is to enable these people to choose well so they live well in the land of Canaan. And in order to do that, they need to be clear about what God is like. And in our passage this morning, Moses reminds them what God is like. He does that by retelling a hugely significant event from their history. An event that gives a very striking and memorable portrait of God. It shows us he is the God of fire and friendship. We're going to read from chapter 5, verse 22, down to the end of the chapter in verse 33. In chapter 5, Moses has just recited the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments, which God gave at Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. And now in verse 22, Moses recalls what came along with the Ten Words. He says, these are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain, from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, 
all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me and you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today, we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go, tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws that you are to teach them to follow in the land I am giving them to possess. So, be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. This is God's Word. And it reveals a God who is both a consuming fire and a gracious helper. Maybe the most famous statement the Bible makes about God is that he is love. It's a wonderfully true statement about God, as we'll see. But it's important to realize that is not the only God is statement that the Bible makes. It also tells us God is spirit. It tells us God is a righteous judge. And just one chapter back in Deuteronomy, we were told God is a consuming fire. And that statement is repeated in the New Testament in the, in the book of Hebrews, as we saw in our reading. Now, you and I might not like all of those statements about God. We might not find all of them easy to understand. But if we are going to know God as he is, we have to take on board all the Bible says about him, not just some of what it says. And here in our passage, Moses describes a memorable event where Israel met this God who is a consuming fire. Moses, remember, is retelling something that actually happened 40 years before. After the Lord delivered the Israelites from Egypt, he brought them to this mountain. And verse 22 says, the Lord himself proclaimed the 10 words to the whole assembly of Israel. That detail is important because these words were for all the people. 
They had all been rescued for relationship with God. And these 10 words set out the way of relationship. Having been saved by God, this is how they're to live in relationship with him. And Moses says God gave him two stone tablets on which God himself had written the Ten Commandments. Now, it's impossible for us to imagine what that experience must have been like for Moses. But what's significant is there were two stone tablets. And that was not because God couldn't fit all Ten Commandments on one tablet. Both tablets contained all ten commandments. They were identical copies. Why? Because this relationship is something both God and the people are committing to. Historians tell us treaties or covenants worked this way in the ancient world. Both parties received an identical copy. So here, God is doing something that people can understand very well. Here at Mount Sinai, he is not just asking Israel to commit to him. The Lord is pledging his commitment to Israel. In our Bibles, Lord in capital letters is translating God's personal name, Yahweh. And here he shows he is committed to his people. But Israel immediately realizes there's a problem here. How can they possibly have a relationship with this God? Verse 22 has already told us, the Lord's voice from the mountain was accompanied by fire, cloud, and deep darkness. This is actually the fourth time this has been mentioned in the book. It was a terrifying experience for Israel. Utterly terrifying. And the Israelites decided that, in fact, it was unbearably terrifying. In verse 23, Moses says, When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today, we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? People say the Lord has shown his glory and his majesty. Now, of course, he hasn't shown the full extent of it. But even the partial display of God's glory is overwhelming. In fact, the people are shocked to find themselves still alive. In verse 24, when they say, we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them, that is not an expression of confidence on their part. Like they're saying, now we know we can survive hearing God speak. No, the sense of it is, yes, we're still alive, but we don't know how. And so in verse 25, they say to Moses, we survived today, 
But twice in a row is not likely. We cannot go through this again. Any more exposure to the fire of God's glory and majesty and this great fire will consume us. Are the people overreacting? Not at all. A genuine encounter with the living God, a genuine knowledge of the living God will impress on us the awesome power of God and His burning holiness and His overwhelming majesty. A genuine encounter with God will show us we cannot expect to survive His presence. Because as the Israelites recognize in verse 26, frail, finite mortals don't have what it takes to live with the eternal one. It's a good point to pause and ask ourselves, is this our understanding of things? Do you and I have any recognition that the God we are dealing with is a consuming fire? Do we have a sense of this when we speak about God, when we sing and speak to God? Last week we looked at the third commandment, and we said the command not to misuse the Lord's name was literally a command not to use his name in an empty way. It's a command not to be satisfied with can't. Can't is religious talk that we don't really mean. Or that means very little to us. It's just words we say. It's not expressing a commitment that comes from the heart. And the experience of Israel at Sinai was that nothing cures religious cant like an encounter with God himself. The prophet Isaiah encountered the Lord in a vision, and Isaiah's response was to cry out, Woe is me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. What we find is those who meet God in Scripture, they do not give Him a high five or even an elbow bump. Their first thought is that they have no hope of surviving the meeting. And in case we're wondering, the New Testament doesn't tone that down at all. We've seen how even the fire of Mount Sinai was only a partial display of God's glory. And in the New Testament, when Peter, the disciple, saw Jesus' ability to fill his nets with fish, just that tiny glimpse of Jesus' power was enough for Peter to fall at Jesus' knees and say, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter wasn't daft. He saw a little glimpse of Jesus' divine majesty, 
and he knew he had no right to survive in God's presence. And Peter and Isaiah both realized the problem we have is not just our fragility and our mortality. It's also our sin and uncleanness. God's holy presence burns up things that are not holy. And yet, even as forgiven people whose sin has been atoned for and whose guilt has been taken away, even then, God's presence does not cease to be awe-inspiring. We've already seen how the book of Hebrews takes the teaching of Deuteronomy and reapplies it to New Testament Christians. The writer to the Hebrews says to Christians, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. True knowledge of God produces deep reverence and awe. And so, maybe you and I would have to admit that our free and easy attitude to God, and maybe the ways we carelessly disobey Him, maybe that shows we have a lot to learn about the glory and majesty of our God. Maybe we still need to learn that, as C.S. Lewis put it, our God is not safe. The Israelites learned that as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they could see only one solution. In verse 27, they say to Moses, go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. You be the go-between, Moses. You meet with God, then come to us from God's presence and share his word with us. The Israelites understand they need help to deal with this God of glory and majesty. And as they acknowledge that, they discover something else about him. They learn that the Lord is a gracious helper. We already know this God of fire is committed to these people. Remember, he provided two copies of the ten words. One for the people and one for himself. He is invested in this relationship. But here, he shows himself to be invested to a degree Israel probably couldn't have imagined as they were experiencing the fire on the mountain. It's easy to miss the significance of verse 28. As Moses retells what happens 40 years before, he says in verse 28, the Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Notice, first of all, God does not correct the Israelites' impression of him. He does not say, oh, go on. 
I'm not so awe-inspiring as you're making me out to be. You're overdoing it. No, the Lord says Israel's assessment of him is good. It's accurate. He is a consuming fire. They are not safe. They do need a go-between. That's what the verse says, but I mentioned a moment ago, it's easy to miss the significance of the verse. To get the significance, we need to notice a pattern that appeared in verses 22 to 27. Over and over in those verses, the text says literally, the Lord spoke words and Israel heard his voice. The Lord spoke, Israel heard. Now in verse 28, the pattern is reversed, exactly. Now Israel speaks words, and the Lord hears Israel's voice. Considering what we learned in those earlier verses, that makes verse 28 the most shocking verse in the whole passage. That this God of consuming fire, of overwhelming glory and majesty, this God whose word rules, is so committed to these people that he listens to their voice when they speak. Surely this is a God beyond our imagination. We can imagine a weak and watery God who listens to us because he needs us and he really wants to please us. But could we ever dream up this combination? A God of consuming fire who hears the voice of his people. Not because he needs us, but because he has committed himself to be our gracious helper. It is beyond our dreams. And yet, this is our God. Not just a God who tolerates us, but who listens carefully, who longs for our good. You see that in verse 29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. God listens carefully to us. He longs for our good, and he acts for our good. He's a God who not only listens, he also provides. In verse 27, the people recognized they needed a go-between. And God provides the one they asked for. In verses 30 and 31, God says the people can retreat to a safe distance. They can go back to their tents. And Moses will indeed be the go-between. God will give the instructions to him, and then Moses will pass them on to the people. Moses becomes the mediator of this covenant, this relationship between God and the people. 
So Moses himself is a gift in that sense. The provision of a go-between is a gift in itself. Saving the people from being consumed by the fire. And Moses also delivers a great gift to the people. The gift of God's instruction. We've seen earlier in this book, God's instruction is not a ball and chain. It's the way of life and wisdom. It reveals how to live well in God's world. You can see that again here in verse 32, as Moses now says to the people after recounting the event at Sinai, he says in verse 32, so be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. The Lord's instruction is described here as a road to travel on. It's a road that leads to good things. And if we've truly grasped how this passage started, we will be amazed at how it's ended up. The God who's a consuming fire has also shown himself amazingly to be a gracious helper to his people. And I would suggest to you, if you and I take on board both aspects of this, if we keep both aspects in our minds and hearts, we will live with a healthy and helpful fear of God. The fear of God is something we hear about often in Scripture. And it's easy to get the wrong end of the stick when we think about this fear. We can wrongly think of it as a kind of dread of God. Or we can go the other way and equally wrongly think it has no relevance anymore. Those are both wrong ways of thinking. Listen to this description of what it means to fear God. And it also highlights what our passage this morning has shown us. Biblical fear is a humble and loving response to the character of God. Such fear rightly perceives the awesome and even terrifying power of God. But this perception is tempered with marveling that one so majestic is concerned for his people. Biblical fear is proper regard for all God discloses about himself in his glory. Lordship with love. Infinitude with intimacy. An all-powerful hand with a redeeming heart. Or to put it more simply in terms of what we've seen in our passage... A right regard for God recognizes him as both the God of fire and the God of friendship. And today, we know the friendship of God in an even greater way than God's Old Testament people. They had Moses as their go-between. We have Jesus Christ. 
The book of Hebrews calls Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, a deeper, closer relationship with God. Moses could relay God's word to the people. He could make God's word known. But Moses was just a man. Jesus Christ came to make God himself known. Both his word and his character. The first chapter of John's gospel says this about Jesus. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Moses brought God's word to the people. When Jesus came, God himself had arrived among the people. And in the person of Jesus, we see both the awe-inspiring fire of God that glory and majesty that made Peter fall at Jesus' knees and say, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And in Jesus, we also see the amazing friendship of God. To the point where Jesus laid down his life so his people could be cleansed from their sin and saved from the destruction sin brings. The book of Hebrews has reminded us today God is as much a consuming fire as he ever was. He is still to be worshipped with reverence and awe. But with Jesus as our Savior, we are not in dread of the consuming fire. Through the work of Jesus, this fiery God has shown himself to be our greatest friend. In Christ, we worship him as the Lord who loves us. So before we do anything else this morning, let's take a moment to consider this personally, individually. Let's ask ourselves quietly, do we need a deeper grasp of God's character? Maybe you're someone who has a good grasp of the fire. But you need to go on and believe God when he says, as a new person in Christ, you have the friendship of God. He loves you. He loves to hear you asking him for your daily bread. He loves to hear all your needs and concerns. And as Hebrews says, he has prepared for you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He will bring you to that kingdom as his dearly loved friend. On the other hand, maybe you're someone who's been taking God's friendship for granted because you've never understood the fire of his holiness and majesty. Maybe you've never realized you need a go-between to save you from God's fire. In that case, learn from Peter and Isaiah 
and the Israelites at Sinai. You need to be saved from God's fire. You need to be with Jesus if you're going to enjoy the friendship of God. And then it could be you are a Christian, but you've lost that sense of reverence and awe. Maybe you've become so used to God's love and friendship that you've forgotten he is also your Lord. And his love calls for a response. Your calling is to walk in obedience to the Lord your God. So let's take a moment, as I said, quietly to consider how we might need to rebalance our picture of God today. Whether we need a fresh grasp of the fire or the friendship. Let's ask him to help us worship him as he is in all of his power and love. We'll take a moment to do that now just where you sit. Now, having spoken to God individually, let's take the opportunity to respond to him together as we move outside and respond with two songs, first of all, only a holy God, and then I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene.